0: I'm Sean Graham, and what's oldest news this week is the 1935 election. Federal elections, to me, are inherently fascinating. They provide a snapshot of the country at a given moment in time. They're not my favorite to live through all the time. Some of the incessant advertising and the back and forth can be a little tiresome. But studying them in the past, I find just to be a a wonderful opportunity to kind of assess where the country is at a given moment in time. And on a personal note, the 1935 election is one of my favorites in part because it covers the period that I study in my academic career. I'm very much a student of the 1930s, and so the 1935 election is right in there. It is also the return of William Lyon Mackenzie King to the role of prime minister. He was the prime minister in the late 1920s. R.B. Bennett wins the 1930 election, and in 1935, William Lyon Mackenzie King comes back with, of course, the economy being front and center, but political divide within the conservative party, the rise of new leftist organizations, and then, of course, you have William Eberhardt out in Alberta. There are a lot of very prominent political figures in the broader history of Canada who are involved in this federal election. At the same time, you have radio. That's where my introduction to this election comes from. The Conservative Party of Canada, through the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission, put out a series of programs that were essentially political advertisements, not disclosed as such, and that created a significant problem for Canada's first national public broadcaster and was One of the issues for the public broadcaster that ultimately led to the structure of the CBC when it was created in 1936. And then, of course, you have the international dynamics of the mid to late 1930s as the world is on the path towards the Second World War. So there is a lot going on domestically and internationally And the 1935 election gives us a sense of where Canadians were feeling towards all of those very prominent and significant issues. And that doesn't even speak to the typical things that we see in Canadian federal elections in terms of the regional linguistic divides, questions of identity that certainly come up every time Canadians go to the polls in a general election. So in 1935, holds a lot of interest to me personally, but I also think it's a very significant election in the political history of this country. And it is the subject of a new book by David McKenzie entitled King and Chaos, the 1935 General Election. This is part of a broader series at the University of British Columbia Press profiling Canada's major elections. The series is entitled Turning Point Elections. And given my intro here, you can tell that I certainly agree with the inclusion of the 1935 campaign here. So when I had the chance to speak with David, I was thrilled to do it. Went a little longer than normal. Probably my fault because I was so interested in this, but it was a wonderful discussion. Think you will enjoy it. So let's get right into my chat with David McKenzie. All right. And David McKenzie joins me now. David, how are you today?
1: I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I'm really glad you're here to talk about King and Chaos, the 1935 Canadian general election. So before we get into some of the specifics about that 1935 election, let's set the stage a little bit for what's going on in Canada. We have R.B. Bennett as the prime minister. William Lyon Mackenzie King is the leader of the Liberal Party. He had been prime minister at the end of the 1920s. But going into this election, this isn't an election that was triggered by anything other than it was time for election it's not like there was a confidence motion or anything so when we're going into the 35 election what are some of the main issues around the country and and what are people kind of looking at uh, societally as we enter into you know late 34 into 35
1: uh well you're right to say that it wasn't a triggered election because in fact it was election that was delayed as long as possible uh, and so there was uh, there was no specific cause of it. They had to have an election. Arby uh, Bennett delayed as long as he could, and then the, he was ultimately had to have an election. There were a number of issues, but the biggest one, of course, was the depression. Uh, there was uh, economic devastation, collapse of world trade. C- the Canadian uh, economy was in very bad shape. In those days, the percentage of Canadian workers that worked in uh, resource industries was very, very high uh, in primary products, uh, and the international trade had largely, the international markets had largely collapsed. Prices had fallen down to historic lows, and, and that was beginning back in 1930, and this is one of the reasons why i delayed calling an election, because things don't get better, hmm. uh, and they, they really bought them out in the summer of 1933, and they are a little bit better by 1935, but unemployment was still very high. Uh, there were still chronic economic problems in the provinces. Provincial governments were uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. And it seemed that the government had no real solution to the problems. And I would say that there was a kind of a, a crisis in capitalism itself. Uh, by not, after, after a year or two, you could still say oh, it's a blip. You know, hang on, things are going to get better. You know, we need a new song or a good joke and everyone will feel better. But after five years people are saying it's not going to get better. And so there's something structurally wrong with the economy. And that was probably the biggest issue. And uh, not to get ahead of you know where we're going, but for the results is probably one of the biggest reasons for the results of, of the election. And that was the, de- the depression So I think as far as the things that were in the air, and one of the things that makes it an interesting election was that people were talking about Newer issues than had been the norm in elections up until that time. If you go back to Confederation, or certainly to the 1870s, it was kind of that old national policy. It was about tariffs, it was about railways, it was about western settlement. And you could look back to 1891 and 1911, where they, you know, were really focused on trade and, uh, you know, economic union and so things like that. By the 1930s, by the and even up to to, to uh into the 1930s Uh, if you look at the 1920s you have the rise of the progressive party and how did the king liberals respond to that well they played around with the tariff they lowered a little bit to placate a few progressives and bring them back into the the liberal party you have turmoil and economic problems down in maritime canada uh, and how did the liberal government deal with that in the 1920s well you play around the freight rates it was railways it was tariffs and that sort of thing even right up to 1930. R.B. Bennett said, I'm going to blast my way into the markets of the world. And really what that meant is I'm going to raise tariffs. Uh, and he did. And everybody raised tariffs, and you have this economic collapse that comes, that's exacerbated by this tariff policy in other countries and including Canada. Well, 1935, people were saying it's not, it's not, that's not the issue anymore. Uh, the West is settled, and now it's backing up. The people are being deported. We're not bringing new people in, stopping immigrants from coming in, but we're sending people back to where they came from. And so that whole part of it was no longer the issue anymore. And now they began to talk about things like unemployment. They talked about government planning, government regulation. They were talking more about if you do those things, which level of government has the power to do it. In many ways, the provincial governments had the power over education, health and unemployment, but but they were all uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. The federal government didn't have the power, but they had the money, right. and so there was a constitutional issue as well in the air as well. So it's a, it's a very different kind of context. Uh, it's the it's the depression, uh, and it's the inability to solve the problems of the of the depression that are really front and center. And that's what makes it such an interesting election because you have new issues, new parties. We'll probably talk about that in a minute. Right. Uh, that come with new answers to the kinds of problems that Canadians were facing. So it's it's an interesting context.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you always wonder about with the 30 election, the 35 election, heck, even whenever the, our next election is, depending on what the context is, so much of the narrative is always surrounding economics and, and what the economy is doing. But as you you mentioned In the 1930s, it's a global situation, kind of a parallel today with inflation, where Mm -hmm. it seems to be driven globally. But national leaders are the ones who are held accountable by the electorate on it. So how much, from a political standpoint, does it matter more the perception that the prime minister is the one who should be leading the economy and is going to be held responsible for this versus, because I know economists argue a lot about the role politicians play in guiding the economy, but from a political perspective, how much is perception key when we're talking about economic factors driving political campaigns?
1: I think perception matters a lot. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, yes, they get held accountable for when things are bad. They also claim the credit when things are. So I mean, you can't really sort of say, oh, poor politician. Um, Certainly- The canadian economy was not going to revive from the depression because it was so dependent more so dependent than many other countries on international trade so until you get the revival of international trade uh, the canadian economy was likely not to improve significantly and that really meant until the american economy improved the canadian economy wasn't likely to improve so you in that respect you can sort of say well the politicians played around with things but it was really the international situation Uh, But it was that perception that they were not doing anything or enough. I think you can also, though, put a little bit of blame on them and uh, responsibility, at least maybe not blame, for what was going on, that things could have been done somewhat differently, Uh, like trade agreements. You look at the Liberals in that election, they purposely decided not to do, Mackenzie King said, we're not going to promote any isms whatsoever. You know, younger liberals are saying, we need a dynamic plan to deal with the depression. We need to do this. We need to do that. Mackenzie King said, we don't need to do any of that because the conservatives are falling apart. Right. You know, and so the, the opposition doesn't, as he said, don't win elections. Governments lose them. And the, and the conservatives were in the, in, uh, in the act of losing the election. And so from King's perspective, and you look at the, what they promised in that election campaign, it was vague at best. To be charitable it was you know right. we'll do enough to to further uh, job creation we will make farming easier you know that kind <laughs> of will make it easier to get a mortgage and that pay off a bank right. loan uh, very little relatively little uh you know we'll strength uh, you know put our faith in parliament and responsible government and we'll provide good solid national government uh, sort of those kind of vague kind of promises knowing that they probably didn't need to make more specific promises. So a lot of it is perception, uh, but I think that the parties could have done, and some of the newer parties actually did have quite more dramatic and even radical plans for what they wanted to accomplish uh, in the election campaign. So, yeah, I think perception was a, a big factor in it, but I think that there was there was personality and there was human activity that could have uh, done things differently. We can talk about Bennett's New Deal, where he does come out with a, a few more concrete proposals about dramatic action, uh, which again brings the question of perception into uh, into the discussion as well.
0: Yeah, well, well let's, let's get into the, the New Deal, because a lot of people that I've read have referred to that as a deathbed conversion of sorts for yes. Bennett by really shifting his view towards government intervention in economic issues. And one of the things that often gets discussed when we talk about national elections around the world is that they tend to be viewed at least as referenda on the leadership, whoever is in power. And as you mentioned, certainly in this case, the liberal opposition and some of the other parties are vague in what they're putting forth. And you tend to see that where They want to set it up as a a referendum on whoever the leader is. So how much of the New Deal and and Bennett's introduction of certain policies in the election campaign is part of this election really centering on him himself and really being the judgment on what Canadians felt about his government's performance over the previous five years?
1: Long before the New Deal, he was uh, leading essentially a one-man government. Uh, and he took on enormous amounts of responsibility he was prime minister he was also foreign minister or minister of external affairs he was his own finance minister for several years as well uh, you know so he held he held yeah. three big portfolios uh, ultimately he, he passed on on the finance portfolio but that was always the the, the the critique of Bennett that he was there were the cartoons many listeners have probably seen them of Bennett sitting around a table and everyone at the table is Bennett, you know, yeah. and he's having a cabinet meeting or something down the street and he's talking to himself, having a cabinet meeting. So there was that, he, he brought it on himself in many ways, and he introduces the New Deal, which was a, a proposal to introduce a broad range of social welfare policy, minimum hours, wage uh, protection, unemployment insurance, Health insurance, it was a series of broadcasts that he made where he comes up, uh, and this is in January of 1935, so he knows there has to be an election this year, uh, and he comes up with this whole range of policies, which put him very much on the left of the Liberals and on the left of the political spectrum in Canada. And then he sold himself in these broadcasts as a reformer. He says, if you want reform, you vote for me. If you don't want reform, vote for the Liberals, because they're not offering reform. And so he comes out, and he was a very persuasive speaker when when he was motivated, and he was motivated in a big way at this time. And so it seemed that he was earnest in what he was trying to do. Now, critics immediately sort of say, wait a minute, you know, for four years you've been saying that all these things were unconstitutional and you'd never do them, but now it's self-evident that we need to do them. And so it, it seemed, as you mentioned, a deathbed conversion to this. And his image, of course, was just the opposite. He was the epitome. He was like the guy in the, you know, the get out of jail free cards and monopoly you know he looked like that plutocrat <laughs> of the 1930s and he was in many ways that it just seemed it didn't seem right coming out of out of uh, out of his mouth and so people were skeptical and I think they had a right to be skeptical um, because as it turns out he had no real th- proposals other than something that came up in his head he had no legislation planned he had not brought the rest of his cabinet into his thinking about it you know, some of the people in his cabinet wrote in their diaries, you know, there's Bennett. He's talking about all these new policies. Never talk to us from <laughs> you know, the cabinet about it. And we don't know anything about what he's doing. So even there, you have a lot of people say, does he really mean it? Right. Uh, I think it was Grant Dexter, who was a journalist at the time, who was talking to him about it. And he got the idea or the feeling from talking to, board, uh, to Bennett about it, that his real plan was to put these out as ideas and then call an election. Because you have to have an election. It comes in with all these new ideas. I'm the reformer. I'm the ship of the captain. I'm the captain of the ship, sorry. Uh, And, you know, follow me with these new ideas. There weren't much more than proposals, but the thinking was you'll introduce them, uh, that the opposition will come out and do what it's supposed to do, oppose. And then you have an election platform. We're not going to talk about five years of my record. We're going to talk about these reforms in the future. And it's hard not to look at it in any other way than that, uh, because it was they were unprepared to deliver on them. Uh, he had been saying for years that these kind of things were unconstitutional and which the liberals knew. And they, they immediately said, yeah, they, it's going to be unconstitutional. We'll have to take them to court on this issue. And he was dependent on the liberals coming out and opposing it. And the liberals were smarter. And they said, yeah, what he's trying to do is lure us into an election in which he's arguing for these social uh, advances and reforms, and we're going to be p- painted to be on the right of that, uh, and they refused to play along. So when he introduced the things in, in Parliament, the Liberals said, we agree. You know, Bring them on. Let's see the legislation. Right. Of course, he got caught not having the legislation. Right. And then he got he became very ill. Uh, soon after the, the New Deal was reintroduced, uh, he came down with a very serious case, I think, of pneumonia, uh, and it was bedridden for a few weeks. And then in February, he has a heart attack. Uh, and he's again bedridden for, uh, you know, through March and into early April. And in the interim, of course, the New Deal just languishes because nobody knows what to do with it, you know, because the people are writing, his colleagues are writing, we didn't know what he had in mind, you know, and so nothing happens. And when he's finally better, he comes back and he then promptly leaves for Great Britain for the coronation of the king and so he's out of the country again in may and into june and so everybody knows that the election is not going to happen now until the fall uh and because everyone had thought it would happen in the spring and so he put, and then people thought well he's had a heart attack he's been sick he, you know he's he's going to say his long goodbye he's going over to england you know do you know wine and dine over there and then come back and resign uh and then we'll have a new conservative leader and that was the thinking uh, but he had, uh, in the interim, you have the rise of this new uh, Reconstruction Party uh, in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, I don't know if you want me to talk about, about that, but that comes into, the, into play, ultimately leading to his decision not to resign.
0: Right.
1: Uh, he had hoped, apparently he had asked Arthur, Mee to come in, Arthur Meehan to come in uh, to re, uh, replace him and was turned down. About half of his cabinet was resigning and they weren't going to be coming back for re-election. They had lost four or five by-elections in 1935. There were four seats uh, without any sitting candidate in the summer of 1935. So there was nobody else he could turn to other than his growing rival, H.H. Stevens, and he did not want Stevens to take over the leadership. And so despite his health problems, he decides to stay on Uh, and run, uh, stay on as leader and run in the 1935
0: election. Yeah, so you mentioned Stevens. Let's talk about uh, the Reconstruction Party and Stevens runs as the leader of that party in the election. How much is this fracturing that you just described of the Conservative Party? I mean, it's always dangerous to play counterfactual history and say, well, what would have happened without that? But within this, fracturing of the party where you have Stevens, what is Stevens's goal in leading the Reconstruction Party? What are they standing for? What is ultimately that platform that he's putting forth in his campaign?
1: Well, H.H. Stevens was an interesting man who kind of had a long history, uh, much of it unpleasant in sort of municipal politics in British Columbia uh, earlier on around before the First World War. But he comes into federal politics was a very good friend of Bennett in fact I think they shared an office for a while and then uh, Stevens loses his seat he's from British Columbia uh, in 1930 and uh, Bennett finds him another riding and gets a by-election to bring him in and then brings him in as trade and commerce minister in his government so everything was fine in the early years but as the depression goes on there is a bit a growing, fracture within the Conservative Party between the sort of those who represented the major financial institutions, big business, the corporations, you know, the fat cats uh, in Canadian society. And on the other side, all these sort of smaller, you know, independent retailers and small business people, the mom and pop stores, all the people who were naturally conservative and voted conservative, but could not catch a break In the depression, you know, they were being squeezed by the banks The, you know, people didn't have the money to buy stuff unemployment was high. they just couldn't get a break. And so you get these sort of two wings within the uh, conservative party. And Bennett, as I mentioned before, he represented everything, you know, monopoly capitalism sort of thing. And he just could not play the other role. But Stevens could, he could be a representative of the small businessman and woman. Uh, in Canadian society. And it reflected, because he was somebody who had been in a number of businesses that were not that successful. And he's in a cabinet with some people who were very wealthy, like Bennett, a very wealthy man. So he was a conservative and supported business, but he represented the common business person. Uh, And what he increasingly began to realize, he headed a a, uh, a committee on price spreads. And you have these companies that would what they paid for something, the products that they used to manufacture the goods and what they sold from it, uh, sold those products for. And that was, they talked about the, the price split between the two. And he began to examine that in this committee. And he began to, to get way ahead of where the government was going. He began to make say, well, we've got to do something about this. We've got to do about the big retailers. You know, the particularly Simpson. He had a thing about Simpsons uh, and the meatpacking industry and all, virtually all the corporations—they're squeezing out the little guy. They're doing these loss leaders in their store, you know, reducing the prices of something that forces the smaller business out of business. And the Eatons and the Simpsons and the and the, the meatpacking Canada Packers and all these large corporations—they were they were the problem. Uh, and it was a message in by 1934 that many people bought into. It made sense. You know, yeah, the the big guys, the banks, they're all doing okay. It's the little guy that's having trouble. And Stevens became, you know, the spokesperson for that naturally conservative voter, very popular across the country. And so someone like Bennett was in a difficult situation. He didn't like Stevens getting ahead of where he was going, where the party was going on the one hand, but on the other hand, he didn't want to get rid of him because he was very popular, (laughs) you know, and that was the hope. Uh, that those voters would maintain the government. So it's kind of an uncomfortable kind of uh, connection between the two through 1934. But it comes to, and, but Stevens kept on going out. They, he got a royal commission on price spreads and he was to head it, although he never does. It was one of those royal commissions where he started talking about what they discovered before they even met. You know, <laughs> yeah. We don't need to research this. I know what's happening. So he made speeches about what they were going to talk about even before they meet in the summer of 1935. And he starts attacking the meat packers and Simpsons. And Simpsons, you know, the, the man named Burton was the president of Simpsons, was, was friend of Bennett's. He says, this guy's saying all these bad things about me and you got to do something about it. He also talk, attacks uh, Sir Joseph Flavel, who was a, a shareholder. These of aging Flavel by this time, but a well-known conservative benefactor of the party, friend of Bennett. And there's Stevens attacking him, and Favell goes to uh, Bennett and says, you've got to get him to apologize. And Bennett goes to Stevens and said well, all you have to do is apologize publicly and uh, everything will be fine. But Stevens and, and Bennett had a similar kind of personality. They were very sort of strong-willed and unwilling to bend. And Stevens says, no, I will not apologize, and ultimately resigns from the cabin. So then he, he quits as the pres, uh, as the, the commissioner of the This Royal Commission, another MP, leads it, and it reports early in 1935. But that frees Stevens to go on a national campaign, dumping on Simpsons and Eatons and all these other things. And again, there's that kind of thing. Do you want him in the party or do you want him outside the party? And uh, By the end of the year, he's become a rival for the leadership. People are talking about Bennett's going to leave. He's not well. He doesn't want to be around. We're going to have to find a new leader. And increasingly, it looks like it's going to be Stevens that that's the one who the one guy who's saying things to people saying yeah that might work you know bring in many of the things that stevens was talking about was essentially inserting government it's kind of like a corporatism a kind of we're going to insert government if you have you'll have an industry and government will set up a board which will decide what the right price of things are
0: right
1: often compared it to the wheat board you know we have a board sure. that goes in we take the wheat crop and we decide what the price is going to be. Well, we can do it for the fish. We can do it for, we can do it for you know, any kind of other industry. And of course, the, he would be the government board. You know, it would be the role of the government as a kind of a conciliator in that sort of thing. And people thought, well, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe this is a good idea. So the, the relationship between Bennett and Stevens goes down the tubes, uh, and Bennett is is looking to retire. He wrote a number of people saying, yeah, I want to get out of here. But increasingly, it looks like Stevens is the guy who will replace him. And that is a bridge too far for Bennett. He says, I cannot let Stevens take over. And so it's when that, ha- that happened in the fall of 1934. Uh, and Stevens is a wild card. So by December, Bennett is saying, no, I'm going to run. I'm staying on as leader. And at the very beginning of January, he comes in with this new deal. Uh, that's what, where it comes from. He says, I'm going to come with these dynamic new policies. Well, Stevens stays on in the party right until the summer of 1935, when push comes to shove, it breaks out in Parliament, where Stevens and and he was gathering more and more support, and Bennett stands up and, and sort of breaks officially with Stevens, and Stevens expects a lot of support from his colleagues, uh, and he doesn't get it. They stay silent, and they support Bennett, and so Stevens quits the party and forms his own Reconstruction Party. Uh, It's done just weeks before the call of the election, so they have practically no time to organize. They had virtually no, it was a one-man party, uh, but it was very popular on the grassroots level. You have a lot of conservative organizations that just become what they call Stevens Clubs or Stevists, throw themselves uh, into the Reconstruction Party. You have a lot of uh, nomination meetings in the Conservative Party, and the losers say, well, I'll run for the Reconstruction Party. You know and the shift their allegiance that way. Uh, and so they gather they gather a lot of support across the country. It's you know 3,000 miles wide. it's only about an inch deep, but it's, it's broad support. Even in Quebec, a lot of it's a non-socialist response to the problems of the depression and that resonated well in the province of Quebec. It resonated well in in, in part of English Quebec as well as, as French Quebec. Uh, and so there you have this new party, uh, which is going to, and Mackenzie King and the liberals realize it, we don't need to fight these guys. They're killing themselves, you know, for us. They're, they're breaking apart. And the only, the major voters for this new reconstruction party are going to be coming from the conservative party. Uh, it's hard to say how many, you, you know, to quantify it and sort of say, well, it was 20% or whatever. Uh, so it's impossible to do that. But clearly in some areas, like in the Toronto area, in the Toronto-Hamilton area, they won quite a uh, 14% of the vote. Nationally, they won about 8% of the vote. But in some areas, like down in the Maritimes, in some areas, they won, you know, 14% of the vote. And, and given that the Conservatives were the bedrock of their support was in Ontario, when you take away a large number of votes in a, in the Toronto and Hamilton ridings, it, it does have an impact. Nobody can say how many seats it cost them. It doesn't cost them the election for sure. They would have lost anyways. Sure. Uh, but it clearly eats into uh, their support, uh, in especially in central Canada.
0: Right. Yeah. So you're, if you look at sort of total votes, uh, I got it up here, 8%, roughly 384,000 mm-hmm. votes. So that's not an insignificant number of votes. But as you describe the Reconstruction platform and some of the things that Stevens himself believed, you wonder where is the heir between some of what Stevens is putting forth and then what J.S. Woodsworth has as part of the CCF uh, because they're also running in this election. Little more of the percentage than the Reconstruction Party, but how is Woodsworth and the CCF, how are they viewing themselves and how are they inserting themselves in this election relative to these economic issues and this fracturing of the Conservative Party? Well,
1: they were they were a party that was much more on the record I mean they had you know they were created in 1932 but in 1933 you have the Regina manifesto which sets out uh, and so they were they were clear that sometimes was good because they were a party of principle and you knew where they stood but they couldn't fudge things it was like the liberals <laughs> yeah, they we're, we're going to do this and we're going to help things they were there on record they wanted to uh, introduce socialism in Canada there was no doubt about it it's right there in the Regina manifesto that sets them apart from all of the other parties. Uh, the thing about Reconstruction was that it was a non-socialist alternative, just like social credit is in Alberta. It's a, a non-socialist response to the depression. Well, the CCF was a socialist party. as Woodsworth said it was Canadian socialism, which was, I guess, less fiery. It was gonna be democratic. It was gonna be done through the ballot box. They weren't going to nationalize all business, as Woods would say. We're just bad business, right. you know. The, so it was going to be, you know, socialism with a gentle, a gentle face, I guess, if okay. you will. But it was, it was different. It does bring that issue into the election campaign. It brings in a party that's to the left of everybody, and much of the rhetoric we talked about perception early. There a, earlier. There's a good example of it uh, because the rhetoric of the Reconstructionists and the social credit was very radical, very radical. They're all at the, we're going to get the bankers and the big shots and the plutocrats, and we're going to tear this down. We're going to do this dramatic action. And 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 that puts them, many, all these parties really to the left of the liberals. It, it, you know, if you take, Bennett, if you include Bennett's new deal in that, uh, and as someone in Ottawa said at the time, we, you know, we used to have political parties in Canada, liberals. and Now we only have reformers. We <laughs> all reform the system, so you can see the perception is that many of these other parties were radical, uh, but it was really the CCF that was the most radical uh, of the of the main parties in that election uh, in 1935, and they uh, were easily tarred by the communist brush. You know the conservatives, uh, you know, attacked them for being communist. Bennett tried to link them to the Ontario, excuse me, on, the Ontario Ottawa Trekkers, you know, that the, they were sent to Ottawa to kidnap him by communists. You know, at some point he was talking about he was going to be kidnapped by this communist and that sort of thing. And so they, they tried to paint the CCF red. And the Liberals got off as a result. I mean, one of the big issues in the election was Section 90, 98 of the Criminal Code, which had been introduced back in 1919, which made it illegal to advocate or to act upon uh, the violent overthrow of the government. So if you're, you had a party that talked about overthrowing the government, like communists, uh, you could be jailed. And Tim Buck, the communist the leader, was jailed. And a number of other people were sent in, put in prison for, uh, under Section 98. Well, both the liberals and the CCF wanted to do away with it. Bennett wanted to keep it. He was the party of law and order. We have to do this. We have to keep the communists out. Uh, the liberals uh, and the CCF opposed it. Uh, but the liberals got off scot free. I mean, when the when the CCF talked about it, they would say, "Ah, oh, that's because they're communist inspired and they want to help their, their communist friends and that sort of thing." So they got a bad deal uh, on there. Except, particularly, I think in Quebec, because in fact, the one place in the country where Section ninety eight was still popular was in Quebec, where they didn't. There was a strong anti communist uh, feeling, uh, and so the liberals were a little bit trouble there because they didn't want to uh, get rid of Section ninety eight. So they just didn't talk about it uh, in Quebec. They said, we'll just leave. We just won't talk about it uh, because it's popular there. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question completely with Well, no, but but it's all these different ideas into this new election campaign.
0: Yeah. and, And bringing different things. And when we talk about bringing different things, you mentioned the social credit party. We should talk about William Aberhart and what he brings into it. I've read a lot about William Aberhart in the context of his relationship or lack thereof with the various regulatory bodies on broadcasting uh first the canadian radio broadcasting commission then the cbc to say his relationship with them was tense at times would probably be a great understatement he was rather aggressive in his commentary especially for the day where radio commentary was not usually very extreme people very much stayed inside the lines, but he did not in a lot of cases. And the Social Credit Party is one that I've always found it difficult to kind of pin down where they stood because there's certainly social issues that they, you would say, maybe are on one flank of the political spectrum, economic issues maybe on the opposite flank. So where does William Eberhardt, where does the Social Credit Party fit into this both in their ideas, but also the regional side of it, but with with him being so much of a figure in Alberta?
1: Uh, well, they, they were, in many ways, a radical party. And they talked about a number of things that you consider social welfare and social reform, education reforms, and things like that, beyond the, the uh, social credit dividend and the idea that we'll just, you know, just create some inflation. But again, it was a non-socialist alternative Uh, For uh, rural Albertans, Um, you know, most farmers, uh, they don't have a problem with private property. You know, they own their land and they were looking for ways uh, to get to deal with the depression. And this one essentially was one where we're going to create inflation. I mean, that's the idea. We'll just hand out checks. We'll give you money. I mean, it, it interferes with banking, which was a federal responsibility, so it's likely to be unconstitutional. But in in the Depression, many people said, we don't care, we like the idea. And so it was a non-socialist response to the Depression that was very popular among rural voters in Alberta. It was quite radical, and and the rhetoric was very radical as well. It was a kind of a populist tinge to it. There was also that element, which was very different from the CCF, it made them very different, where the CCF was hell-bent on educating people We'll have study clubs and socialist groups, and we'll get together, and, you know, this group and the socialists of BC will meet the trade unionists of Manitoba, right. and everybody will study these things. Eberhardt uh, was just the opposite. He said, you don't have to study any of this. Just vote for me, you know. He says, it's like electricity. I think one of his yeah. famous lines is, you just have to turn the switch off, you know, and let us experts take care of it. It was the very the opposite, and a lot of people believed in it. So it's... And, The thing about social credit, though, when you come to the the 1935 election is that it comes very late. It's almost like the Reconstruction Party because the election of Eberhardt takes place in the summer, just days before the beginning of the federal campaign. So it helps social credit in the federal campaign because they've been talking about it in Alberta for months. Uh, uh, And so everyone knows about it. Uh, And there is a kind of a very fine line between the provincial party and the federal party. And I'm not even certain that Eberhardt was really that interested in a national campaign. He, I think, in some ways, he was probably more interested in trying to get a provincial Social Credit Party in Saskatchewan. You know, get another Social Credit Party, and then you know we're not going to do it in 1935. And they don't run candidates any anywhere outside of Alberta and a few in Saskatchewan and British Columbia. Uh, and so they're not going to form a government. Uh, and the thing that happens though within the election, the impact that they have is that they are all fighting for the same voters. Yeah. You get the Reconstructionists coming in talking about the little guy and, and the, the you know it's the malevolent forces in society, the banks, and well that's what abart's saying too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and there's woods, there's Woodsworth talking. It's the banks, it's the big shots, you know, and and they're fighting for the same voters, especially in the, on the prairies, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, uh, and and. The, much of the rhetoric is, is, is similar as well. And when you break down the vote, it's hard to say, well, were those people gonna vote CCF or would they have voted liberal or did the Reconstructionists come in and take uh, votes away? And there was a little bit of uh, combination like reconstruction didn't run very many candidates in Alberta or Saskatchewan. It was denied, but there was a kind of an unofficial alliance with social credit. We'll just stay out of those writings. Right. So reconstruction ran everywhere else. The CCF was accused of making deals with the social credit. They denied it as well. But like Tommy Douglas uh, wins election in in 1935 in Saskatchewan, and he took support from social credit. And social credit and the CCF tried to uh, defeat Mackenzie King, who was also running in Saskatchewan. So there was a kind of overlapping, and they were really all fighting for the same voters, using very radical uh, rhetoric. Uh, in in trying to achieve that.
0: So one of the things I'm curious about and given that my background is in the history of radio and at this time, really the, the 30 election radio exists, but it's not really a player. It is a player in 1935 in the federal side of it, given what the conservatives do with the CRBC. But I'm more curious on the impact on leadership Because forever before this, elections were, and and still are, you're voting not for the leader unless the leader is running in. You're right. And you're voting for the local candidate. I'm curious as to how much the 1935 election is based on leadership. And one of the things that I've suggested or wondered about, at least in the past, is how much does the improving ability for leaders to communicate first through radio and then through television, then obviously through social media and stuff. We saw, say, 2008 with with Barack Obama being perhaps the first to really leverage social media. But how does that level of communication, or does it yet at this point, minimize the role of the local candidates in favor of an emphasis on who the leader is? Or is this something that you've seen in some of the earlier elections that you've studied?
1: Well, that's that's a difficult question. It's, uh, it's a good question, uh, and I think there's a lot of different answers uh, to it. I think if you look down riding by riding, there were there were some ridings that it didn't matter who was the leader. Many of the ridings in Quebec, you know, the Liberals are going to win all those ridings regardless. And, and I don't think that Mackenzie King being the Liberal leader was going to help them or hinder them. And uh, you know, I'm not. I don't mean to take anything away from Mackenzie King. Uh, there were a number of other ridings that had very strong candidates, and sometimes you have those couple of ridings in Vancouver where the party supported uh, the candidate supported by the party is defeated by an independent member of the party. I think there's two of right. those: a Liberal and there's a, a, a CCFER uh, in the, one of the Vancouver ridings where there's an independent CCF candidate and a, a more you know official candidate, and the independent wins. Uh, and so I think in those cases you do it did matter on the ground, uh, in many writings who the candidate was, and some of them ran good campaigns. Agnes Macphail, for example, uh, was in a difficult writing because it, it was Grey and it was Bruce that had been, you know, changed in before 1935, and she had to run against the former, uh, there was the former conservative, uh, in what was now Grey Bruce, uh, and she ran a very strong campaign. Uh, The same for the other woman who won election, Martha Black, up in in Yukon. She said there were only two parties in the Yukon, the Liberals and the Blacks. Uh, (laughs) She ran as an independent conservative. And she ran very much a one-woman campaign. You know, she had no support. Uh, Radio was was pretty weak up in in Yukon in Mm -hmm. those days. So I think in many ways, the candidates did make a difference. Having said that, though, and I'm going to contra- contradict myself, uh, the leadership was vitally important as well, especially for the Conservatives. It was Bennett. It was the, All the campaign po- uh, posters were Bennett, vote for Bennett uh, more than the Conservatives. Uh, and so uh, he, he did lead a one-man campaign. He was tireless in campaigning, uh, and uh, he campaigned all across the country. For the Liberals, uh, they purposely played a little bit more to a team effort. So one of the big things that had happened between 1930 and 1935 is that virtually every province elected a liberal government. Uh, and so whereas Bennett was portrayed as the one-man band doing all this, everything by himself, King would always appear with the local provincial premier. You have Mitch Hepburn now in Ontario, Petula, out in British Columbia. All three maritime provinces had elected a liberal. They already had liberals in Quebec going back to the 1890s. Other than Alberta, you had a liberal government everywhere. Even in Manitoba, the progressives had formed an alliance with the liberals before the election. So every time he went somewhere, the provincial premier would come. Mitch Hepburn went with him out west. Uh, Jimmy Gardner Garner from Saskatchewan campaigned in the east. Uh, and so it was much more of a portrayal of a team. That, that was national unity. That was, what, that was one thing. That you, we are the only ones who can promise a national government. Right. CCF didn't run enough candidates to form a government. Uh, social credit was never going to form a government. The Conservatives, they, the Liberals said, have fallen apart. They're not going to be able to form a government. We will form a government, and on top of that, a national government with support in Quebec and in English Canada and all across the country. That's what they they played that up in the campaign. And doing that, of course, they used radio. Radio made that really possible in a way never before uh, in, uh, I think, Canadian political history. Well, as you mentioned, by nineteen thirty-five everyone just about had radios. They had radio, Bennett parties, they called them, to listen to the New Deal. You know, people would gather around, you know, to listen on the radio. They heard the leaders speak more than ever before. You would have candidates in, you know, uh, in, down in uh, Paul Martin in Windsor, you know, would get together with the other candidates and have, you know, broadcast it on radio. When King went down to the Maritimes, they'd hooked up with all the radio stations in the Maritimes. So his speech would be broadcast on stations all across the map. So that was they, they were using it in a, a significant way by this time. And in fact, by the end of it, even reconstruction, they took all the money that they earned or could raise, which wasn't very much, and they had enough for one national broadcast. And they did that the night before, the second night, the, the day before the election was Sunday and they didn't campaign. So the Saturday before the Monday when the election was, he had this, his one and only national broadcast. But the Liberals met in Toronto in Maple Leaf Gardens and they they hooked up all the nine, eight of the nine provincial premiers uh, and they all spoke over the radio and then they broadcast it uh, nationally. And so this was a first, you know, the yeah. broad, coast to coast. Uh, and so, yeah, they used radio effectively in, in 1935 in ways that w- was impossible uh, in 1930.
0: Yeah, and anybody who wants to, and and I'll see if I can find something and link it down below in the show notes. Some of those broadcasts are really interesting to go back uh, and Mm -hmm. listen to, and some of them are on the CBC archives. Uh, If you're ever in Ottawa, uh, if you're out there and you've traveled to Ottawa, a lot of them are on big reel-to-reel things (laughs) in the National Archives, which aren't the greatest to use, but uh, they are there, uh, and they exist. Now, one of the things that we, we haven't really talked about at all is the international conditions outside of the economic realities of the 1930s. So by 1935, Hitler's in power. In Germany, the rise of fascism in Europe is, is well underway. We're starting to see some conflicts. Uh, you know, We're not quite at the, the principal armed conflicts that we see later in the decade, but there are conflicts around the world. How much does the international relations Angle play into it, because certainly, when you look at the structure of Canadian politics, that is a federal realm that falls under their responsibility. Is this something that comes up during the campaign, or are these mostly issues that are to be dealt with by whoever happens to win?
1: well, I think um, I think there there's two uh, two major international events going on. And one of them makes me say yes as an answer. One of them makes me say no, uh, the no is that the big international issue at the time was the, what was called the Italian Ethiopian crisis. And that is fascist Mussolini in Italy is making noises and rattling sabers about reestablishing an empire in Africa. And it looks like there's a possibility of war. Uh, and that if Britain, because the League of Nations is getting involved and in talking about sanctions uh, against Italy, and Italy was an importer of oil from the United States. And so if the League put sanctions on oil, would we have to stop American ships in the Mediterranean? And it was a kind of thing. But it wasn't really that big of an issue in the Canadian election, largely because most of the political parties were on the same side uh, and didn't really want to talk about it because uh, it was a very divisive issue you know and if you could if they couldn't get some kind of political traction out of it one of the parties might have tried to do something about it but there was no way to do that uh and so you get the conservatives standing up and say we're not going to send anybody over to fight in ethiopia don't get you know too worried about that you know and the liberals mackenzie king says the same thing although he's fuzzy about it you know that parliament will come back and talk about it but we have no intention to send troops but Ernest point that's when he made that famous statement about all of. Abyssinia, as they called it in those days, isn't the worth isn't worth the life of a single Canadian. And that was the, the the policy for the Liberals. Everybody else, and J.S. Woodsworth, of course, was a pacifist. And he says, I don't see us going to war. And he said, in fact, if, if war broke out, we'll have a referendum, whether to get involved in it. And if the answer is yes, we're going to resign if we were the government, because I'm not leading us into war. And so he doesn't want to talk about it either. Uh, and so it is a, an issue that's going on. Uh, and it, in fact, it, Bennett has to get involved in dealing with it while he's on the campaign trail because there's there's talk of sanctions in Canada as part of this committee that's looking into sanctions. Bennett's saying, don't go, don't don't be a part of it, and the people over in Geneva are saying, well, if we don't go about it, that means we're going to be siding with the Italians. You know, everyone else is going to go along with it. And we're saying, oh, no, we don't know yet, so we got to right. do something. You know, so that, there was those kinds of things going on, but it doesn't really have a big impact on the election campaign itself. It lingers and festers and then continues after the election is over and then it's Mackenzie King to to deal with it. So that was the no answer. The yes, yes answer was the other big international issue was a trade agreement with the United States. Hmm. Is that Bennett had, had been a conversion. This is one of the turning points of this 1935 election is that the Conservatives Shed themselves of the old protective tariff that they had fought for since the 1870s and begin to embrace freer trade. And so, whereas the tariff was the issue between liberal and conservative in so many previous elections, in 1935, both the major parties want a trade agreement with the United States. And Bennett starts trying to get one with the United States going back to 1933. And 1934, the Americans are opening up, more open to the idea. They pass legislation to allow Roosevelt to, to get a deal. And they start negotiations in 1935. And then they're slowed down just before the election in in the fall of 1935. And the question has always been, did the Americans purposely slow down and not come to an agreement with R.B. Bennett, knowing that they'd get a better deal with the liberals who were likely to win the election and they were clamoring and King was saying, I want a better deal, I want a bigger deal. I want to bring yeah. the British into the deal. I want, I want more and more than what Bennett was uh, asking for. So that does become an issue uh, in, in the election. The trade is there, but now it's both parties wanting to get a deal and arguing about who could get a better deal and who was worse in their previous uh, actions, uh, right. the raising of the tariff and that sort of thing. So that is the yes answer uh, that, uh, they do talk about that. The CCF backs away from that uh, issue. They said, well, it's the tariffs that got us in the problem in the first place. And that's, we don't want that. We want you know, democratic socialism. We don't care about the tariff. Uh, Stevens and the reconstruction party just, just sort of, they're, they're like, I can't remember the way he described it, but they're like two witches, you know, flying around arguing about tariffs. And that really doesn't make a difference for the little guy on the right. street. But between the two big parties, it was an issue right up to the very end of the election campaign. But they had not got the the trade agreement that they both wanted. But that was the other international issue.
0: Yeah, I I like that. So we have death taxes and trade agreements with the U.S. being election issues. We can (laughs) add that to our list (laughs) in this country. (laughs) um, So... I'm curious, you know. It's, it's one thing to be interested in politics and to write about it. I love elections. I think they're really fascinating. In retrospect, in the moment, I tend to find them kind of annoying with all the ads and all the all that kind of stuff. But re- like looking back on them, I do find it really interesting. So, in the case of 1935, of course, Mackenzie King wins the election and is the prime minister through the Second World War. His legacy is what it is, but independent of necessarily Mackenzie King as a person, what is it that brought you to this particular project to want to write about 1935? And what is this election's legacy? Why is it important for us to read about it here in 2023?
1: Uh, Well, I was brought into it because the University of British Columbia Press started a series of books called Turning Point Elections, and they've uh, a number of them have been published already, and a couple more are in the works. And so there is a series of books, and I was asked if I'd be interested in doing it. And it did really intrigue me at the time. I've written on other elections. I find elections themselves are kind of like a snapshot of the country. You know, the issues, who who votes, who doesn't vote, who can vote, what are the issues, you know, is it regional variations? Uh, you can look at it in all different kinds of uh, d- different kinds of ways. Uh, that gives you kind of a snapshot of what people are thinking about and talking about in the country at that particular time. Uh, And so I find in general, uh, they are uh, interesting. And then when I looked at 1935, I was intrigued because it does fit this this idea of being a turning point election. And I think the the legacies, the first one, of course, is that it once and for all breaks the old two party system. The CCF is there. They have ambitions. They're not going to win the election, but they have ambitions to form a government. Uh, and so that is a permanent part of the landscape. And the issues, I don't know if you want to call them working class issues, but uh, issues of reform and government regulation, government planning, that kind of thing, are brought into Canadian elections in 1935 in a way they just aren't there in the earlier elections. And they are there in subsequent elections. So that's one of the, the big things. It all, we, we, we are now at least three parties uh, in the Canadian political system. I think one of the other things that comes out of the lasting things that comes out is the rise of the power of the West. We haven't talked that much about it, but in 1935, really, now you have more seats in Western Canada than you do in Quebec. You go back to 1911 and there were more seats in the Maritimes than there was in all of Western Canada combined. Right. You know, so they were just weren't that important. But you do have the rise of Western power uh, in this election where th- their votes really count. And it's there where you find the strength of the newer parties, you know, the obviously the social credit, you know, but the CCF, they win only in the West. Uh, and uh, they and even the reconstructions, their one seat is in British Columbia. Uh, and so it, it, the rise of Western Western Canada is one of the things that I think comes out of this. A kind of a subtext of that, of course, is that the Liberals are in trouble uh, in Western Canada. And this, is, this predates 1935, so I can't really say it's a turning point in 1935, but it becomes very clear. Liberals win a massive majority of seats in Canada in 1935, but their vote in Western Canada drops, you know, and it's because the Conservative vote drops even more that they're able to still win seats, but they're in trouble in Western Canada. And I think one of the other kinds of things that comes out of it is that increasingly the Liberals sort of say we're not going to win in Western Canada, but we can win now. We can always win in Quebec. Uh, and now we can win more in Ontario, because they win more seats in 1935 in Ontario than they had, I think, since 1874. You know, they won a big number of seats. We can win elections in Quebec and Ontario. And so you do see the focusing, I mentioned national unity, uh, you know, the role of Parliament, uh, support of French Canada, that the Liberals are moving, they're moving into a dynasty, first off, where they win for the next 22 years. And if you just think of the you know, the interregnum of the Diefenbaker years, they're there to really till 1984. You know, it's a generation and more in power based on this bedrock of Quebec and splitting the Maritimes in Ontario. Western Canada is no longer important to them the way it had been to Laurier and earlier Liberals. And that, I think, is a lasting change. You can't say it just started with the election of 1935, but it sort of crystallized in 1935. Sure. So, you know We don't need Alberta anymore. You know, and they didn't get a cabinet minister in the government that's formed after the election. Another thing I think is that, uh, the things I was talking about earlier on is it's the ending of that old national policy. You know, where these were the issues of you know tariffs and railways and western settlement. After 1935, they're talking about unemployment and government planning and you know regulation and other kinds of issues that are much more clear to us today things that we still talk about to this day. And I think you can say 1935 is really where they talk about other things before that. And after 1935, they're moving into, you know, the problems of a, a modern industrial society uh, and how do you deal with that? And they come up with various ideas and that's what we debate in that, of course, still is trade. That's still, still sure. a very important thing. Um, and I think it's the beginning of end, the beginning of the end of what you call inactive government. You know where before both liberals and conservatives said well we'll balance the budget batten down the hatches things will get better you know and the liberals said well we'll get a trade deal and that will pull us out of any recession you know previous after 1935 the idea of economic planning pump priming the economy these other kinds of things they're they're in the air the liberals are on the records uh, supporting a, at least a commission to look into unemployment insurance and ultimately does lead to unemployment insurance within about five years. And then ultimately, they do appoint the Raoul Sirwa Commission, which looks into the, the constitutional side of things. And so you can't say this is the beginning of active government in, in 1935, because it's not. And in fact, they, they bring back Charles Dunning, who was a former Premier of Saskatchewan, as finance minister, signaled to everybody, we're going to do the old ways. But within a few years, they're spending more money. They're looking into these kind of things. And I think what it is is, you know the genies out of the bottom if that's the right cliche yeah. you know there's no going back after 1935 yeah. so the beginning of the end uh, of the or the introduction of this new the the ending of that inactive government yes. and just one final thing which we haven't talked about and that was canada's place in the world and the achievement of autonomy was so much a part of those earlier elections you know the conservatives were pro-empire and the liberals were pro more autonomy well, by 1931, with the statute of Westminster, that, you know, a, a, there's a turning point there. Uh, and it was Bennett who comes, who was there to pass it, help pass it, get it through. Uh, and that really uh, establishes Canadian independence in the world. And so there's, from then on, it's sort now what are we going to do with it? You know, it's no longer achieving it. Now what are we going to do? So that's a bit of a turning point. Not so much hooked up to the election, but that's there as well uh, in the mid-1930s.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, A lot going on in the country, a lot going on around the world. And certainly, as you mentioned, uh, a lot to unpack with the election. And I I think you're right when you say it's a a good chance to look at a a snapshot of the country. So and as you said, we've we've really kind of scratched the surface on a lot of these issues. So we encourage everybody to check it out. It's King in Chaos, the 1935 Canadian general election. As you mentioned, you've written about other elections, 11 and, and 17. This is part of the Turning Points series. And I said, I, I really love elections. Uh, I, I talk about them more than maybe most people usually do. But I mean, 88, of course, is interesting. 1896 is interesting. So there's there's a lot of fun elections. You have a favorite election? Like, and I won't let you say 1935, because that's what we've talked about for the last hour. <laughs> but is there... On the contract, I have to say 1935. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, yes, I
1: have, I have studied some elections, and I'm old enough now to have lived through quite a few of them. I would have to say 1917 was the, the most dynamic and exciting uh, election that I've studied. Um, that would just be what i say. Tomorrow I might say 1911 or some some other election, uh, but it was a very difficult election, uh, and uh, it had uh, ramifications that were very very important. Uh, and so it was a, it was a, it was unique as an election a wartime election. We've had other wartime elections, but it was the first wartime election, although I guess with 1900, it may have been during the South African War, but it was, maybe I should take that back. But it was (laughs) in the middle of the First World War, which was already tearing the country apart. Uh, And so it was in that context that made it a fascinating study.
0: Yes, Uh, so that one is Embattled Nation, Canada's wartime election of 1917. And then you have Canada, 1911, the decisive election that shaped the country. So if people want to pick up, certainly King and Chaos, first and foremost, but uh, any of your other books or just keep up with uh, all the work you got going on, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh,
1: well, first, the 1911 and 1917 were co-written with uh, Patrice Till I should say. So he's involved in this as well. And uh, well, I, was at, I was at Indigo the other day and they still had a copy of 1917 on the shelf. So you could just walk into a bookstore and buy it. But the easiest way is to go to the website and to purchase them online, either UBC Press for 1935 or Dundurn Press for 1911
0: and 1917. Yes. And uh, check the show notes below. We will link to those as well. So again, King and Chaos, the 1935 Canadian general election. David McKenzie really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you very much for for asking me. I've enjoyed it very much.
0: So there you have it. My chat with David McKenzie, again, King and Chaos, the 1935 Canadian general election. And with that, let's get right to today's historical headline of the week, which comes from Yukon News on April 16, 2023 by Michael Gates, history hunter, Martha Black, Yukon lady parliamentarian. David mentioned Martha Black. In the conversation, saying that in the Yukon, there were two parties, one of which are the blacks, and Martha Black runs in the nineteen thirty five election for the seat from Yukon, and she wins. It is the first time that she ran for Parliament, but she had extensive experience in Ottawa because her husband, George Black, had been the Yukon's member of parliament for nearly 15 years. He was elected in 1921. So she had been to Ottawa a lot, had great experience with the House of Commons, some of the machinations of parliament. She runs in 1935 and wins the seat for Yukon. The article profiles her experience. She, having been in Ottawa for so long, had commented that she didn't understand why MPs were so bad at speaking in the house of commons until she did it. And she felt all the pressure of being in the chamber and having to say the right thing, wanting to say the right thing and was disappointed with her initial speech that she gave. And and that kind of gave her a little bit of context and understanding of why people tend to struggle, especially rookie MPs when they're speaking. So it's a, a really wonderful profile of Martha Black, by Michael Gates, uh, really goes through her whole life, her career, and how she became the second woman to sit in the House of Commons. As always, it is linked down in the show notes. Encourage you to check out today's historical headline of the week. History Hunter, Martha Black, Yukon Lady Parliamentarian. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcast, Do the likes, the ratings, the comments, all that good stuff. Helps other people find the show and keeps us growing. Of course, you can always head on over to activehistory.ca. Some great stuff over there on the website, including all of our past episodes. And of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, what's oldest news at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again soon for more What's Old is New.